Here on Gadget Lab, we dive deep into the tech universe, tackling questions like, is giving companies access to your genetic material a good idea? And are the latest phone releases really that different than the last ones? We want to help you make informed decisions about what is worth your attention. And here's something that is undeniably worth your time, a digital subscription to Wired. Lucky for you, we are giving Gadget Lab listeners an exclusive discount, 20% off an annual subscription to Wired. Just visit Wired.com and use the promo code GL20 to get 20% off a digital subscription. Use GL20 to get exclusive access to stories on the latest innovations like AI, deepfakes, and VR, as well as today's most talked about people in technology. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. Mike. Lauren. I was thinking that we should talk about our own extinction today. You mean like as journalists or podcasters or as like human beings? Mm, maybe both. <laughs> Great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's another podcast about AI. But I think that people are really going to want to listen to this one. Uh, so can I ask, when are we going to give people something to listen to that's actually hopeful? Well, actually, I think that's part of the show, too. Okay, great. So let's get to it. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Gadget Lab. I am Lauren Good. I'm a senior writer at Wired. And I am Michael Calori. I'm a senior editor at Wired. And today, our fellow writer, Will Knight, joins us from Cambridge, Massachusetts. Will, it's great to have you back on the Gadget Lab. Hello, it's great to be back. One of these days, Will, we're going to reach out to you and just say, would you like to talk about, like, cat gadgets or something? But for now, <laughs> you are squarely in the realm of AI coverage. So that's what we're having you on to talk about. So yes, we are talking about AI yet again. But this time, it's a statement from a group of technologists who are warning of an existential threat to humanity. It was the one-sentence statement that was heard around the tech world earlier this week. Quote, mitigating the risk of extinction from AI should be a global priority alongside other societal-scale risks, such as pandemics and nuclear war, end quote. That came from the Center for AI Safety, which is a nonprofit, and it was signed by leading figures in the development of AI. Now, this is obviously not the first time that we've been warned of the perils of AI. Some of our listeners might recall the pause that hundreds of top technologists and researchers were calling for back in March, and so far has not really resulted in a pause. But all of these doomsday warnings had us wondering, what should we believe about the potential for AI harm? And who among these researchers and technologists is offering the most trustworthy opinion right now? 
So, Will, we wanted to bring you in to talk about this. So first, walk it back a little bit. Tell us a little bit about this statement from the Center for AI Safety. What spurred this? Yeah, so I think, you know, what has spurred this as well as the previous letter calling for a pause to a large degree is the advances we've seen in these large language models, most notably GPT-4, which powers ChatGPT. And there's some of the performance has just exceeded what people working in AI expected. They expected some things would be take 10 years to solve or, or would just be more intractable without new techniques. And suddenly this model is able to do things that kind of resemble it's, you know, some kind of reasoning and some sort of abstract thinking, even if it is debatable whether that's actually what it is. So there's definitely been this moment where some people, and I, you know, I've talked to AI researchers who weren't remotely, weren't very worried about uh, existential risk at all, and they've had this realization. Um, so that, that's one of the things that's kind of triggering this, I think. But we should also recognize that there's this kind of group within the AI research community that has long, like many years, been worried, we're talking about existential risks. And this is a kind of philosophical question uh, that they've that they've had. And I think that this is kind of resurfacing a lot of those viewpoints. And we're seeing quite a diverse set of perspectives being merged together in a really quite alarming <laughs> reading statement. I, you know, I think that it's important to also recognize there are a lot of AI researchers who aren't at all worried um, about this threat or, or, and offer a lot more perspective and say, you know, there are far more immediate threats that AI poses when it comes to things like bias or, or um, spreading misinformation or just getting things wrong in the content it provides, as well as things like climate change or, you know, just just other issues that are a much more immediate risk to, to humanity, a more tangible risk. So I think it's a great question and it's kind of a bit knotty to, to unpack. Uh, so it has been uh, an impressive advancement over the last six months or so. And anybody who's used any of these tools like um, like Bing Chat or Google Bard has probably been pretty impressed by how capable it is. But I, speaking for myself, it has not made me think about nuclear war and global <laughs> pandemic yeah. and some of the warnings that uh, the that these that these experts and researchers are are pointing to. So how do you extrapolate? that? Like, how will yeah. AI actually destroy humanity? That's a great question. And I, yeah, I've been trying to understand this myself. And, and I've been talking to some people who've had that recognition. Like there's a guy, Sam Bowman, who's a researcher from NYU who joined Anthropic, one of the companies working on this with safety in mind. And he has a research lab that is newly set up to focus on safety. And so the argument that those people have is, or that some people have, such as him, are that um, these systems are showing signs of greater intelligence in some ways than than expected, and they have objectives which they can reach in opaque ways, ways that are difficult to predict, sometimes ways that are surprising. Um, but then they're extrapolating from that and saying, you know, some way down the line, and it is a long way down the line. I, I mean. But they're also saying we don't know how far because things are moving more quickly. So for years, people have been working on these AI systems and they've been able to trip them up and say, ah, that's how it doesn't match human intelligence. With GPT-4, it's there are some instances where you, they can't trip them up anymore and they can do things where 
they were like, well, I didn't expect it to do that at all. So I think this kind of triggers like a sort of visceral idea of something outwitting people. And then, you know, when you ask it to solve a problem and it does it in an unexpected way, they kind of imagine it potentially being given, you know, the objective of, I don't know, doing something something very major for for a society or something and then doing and then going to really extreme surprising and, and risky ends to do that it it does seem like a huge leap or extrapolation given that you know Bing chat kind of breaks and gets things wrong all the time but that's I think that that's kind of at the, the core of it there's this kind of idea of this technology which is sort of fundamentally different somehow that it's that it's kind of intelligent and it's more intelligent than us and it can interact and sometimes try and even kind of outwit people. I think that's kind of where it comes from. Is that the same concern or related concern to it being sentient? No, I don't think so. Uh, I think the question of sentience is like, depends who you ask. And there's some people who will argue that all sorts of systems can be sentient, even if they're not biological. And they're, they're, there's a spectrum of views on that. But I think that uh, a lot of the people, at least that I've spoken to, would say that there's this risk doesn't require sentience. It can run out of control and do very unpredictable things, regardless of whether it's uh, whether it's actually sentient, whether you could say it was sentient or not. Hmm. Will, you're talking to a lot of researchers and technologists who are in this space, and honestly, it feels a little bit like musical chair sometimes. Okay, sure, <laughs> yeah. people could say the same thing about journalism, but let's focus <laughs> on AI. Uh, a lot of these folks have come from Google or the same academic institutions, or they were at OpenAI, and now they're at Anthropic. Um, it's really hard to map out who the key players are, aside from the most obvious, and figure out where they're aligned and where they diverge. Mm -hmm. So who would you say are the people who are most outspoken about AI right now and where the most divergent opinions are coming from? Well, I mean, some of the most outspoken people right now are those at these big companies which have these vested interests, right? It's Sam Altman at OpenAI or um, executives at Google and Microsoft. Um, so they're being quite outspoken, I think, for various reasons that aren't just about the concerns of, of AI. Um, it does feel like there's, a, as you say, this kind of slightly incestuous world of people who've drunk the Kool-Aid of, of um, sort of superhuman AI being quite close. Um, and then there are there are people um, such as the researchers who were who you know wrote one of the first papers pointing to this. So Tim Nickabru and, and Margaret Mitchell at Google, who wrote about the real tangible you know current risks with large language models such as them making things up and um, misleading people, who were at Google at the time and then were either fired or asked to leave, um, depending on the, the the story told and the. the uh, there's definitely kind of a, I, I see this kind of divide of people who are more focused on the near-term risks and kind of frustrated with this view of, of um, long-term existential angst, which seems to be coming from a lot of the most people who have, tend to have like a lot of the most financial power and interests. And then people who are warning about what we, what we should be dealing with today and worried about that being a distraction. Um, and then, yeah, Jeffrey Hinton is a really is an interesting case because he's one of the most famous people in AI, one of the people who developed deep learning or pioneered deep learning, which underpins all of this machine learning that's gone into these models. And he recently kind of changed his position and became more worried about or kept more outspoken. He left Google and said, we need to start worrying about the, the risks of this. He actually 
I think is concerned about the short-term risks as well as the long-term ones, but the uh, his his concerns about, you know, AI running amok and eventually taking over or becoming out of control of, has gotten all the headlines and people have kind of, you know, uh, uh, focused on that. But I think he's he's sort of worried somewhat about both. Well, we've already seen two of these big open letters warning of the uh, immediate and future risks of AI. So uh, when are we going to see the third? <laughs> and who's going to write it? Right. Yeah. Next week, I'm guessing, um, signed <laughs> by every single world leader. Um, I do. Yeah. I do think it's it's there's a a real risk that this um, people are not going to take uh, some of the real problems with AI seriously because of this. I, I mean, it's it's a long way off. And so if people are really worried about issues, sort of aligning with this kind of apocalyptic stuff is is kind of a is an extreme way to go. I, I can right. feel that there may there may be a more backlash um, to it. I mean, it's kind of already happening somewhat, but I can see it being more people just won't take this these people so seriously. Yeah, and as your reporting mentions, Will, the letter doesn't really address the more immediate harms like bias or surveillance or misinformation, which you referenced earlier. And so you do have to wonder if focusing on the big existential threats does detract from the things that we should be paying attention to at this moment in time. And I think that that's actually a good segue to our next segment. So let's take a quick break and we'll come back and talk about AI regulation. This podcast is supported by Tools and Weapons, the podcast hosted by Microsoft Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. Each episode features insight you won't find anywhere else from the center of the conversation surrounding emerging technologies like AI. Right now on the podcast, you can hear a special episode where Brad Smith lays out Microsoft's vision for a vibrant marketplace driving the new AI economy. To hear more, follow or subscribe to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts. Want a new podcast to look forward to each week? One that's entertaining, informative, and packed with actionable content? Come on, of course you do. Introducing The Jordan Harbinger Show. The Jordan Harbinger Show, which Apple named one of its best of 2018, is aimed at making you a better informed, more critical thinker so you can get a sense of how the world actually works and come to your own conclusions about what's happening, even inside your own brain. Jordan dives into the minds of fascinating people, from athletes, authors, and scientists, to mobsters, spies, and hostage negotiators. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R, in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. Earlier this month, one of the most prominent figures in generative AI, Sam Altman, who runs OpenAI, testified before Congress on the implications of products like ChatGPT. He not only explained in basic terms how this technology works, but he actually called for some form of regulation, telling Congress that it should work with the companies in this space to try to figure out rules and guardrails before the tech runs totally amok. Well, when I first read about this a couple of weeks ago, I have to admit I wondered how sincere these calls for regulation are. The tech industry has this long history of positioning itself in D.C. in such a way that it seems like it wants to work with the lawmakers, but ultimately, too much regulation would squash their businesses. So why is OpenAI calling for guardrails? Yeah, I think it is kind of an echo of 
of what we've seen before to some degree. And we've also seen Microsoft put out a blueprint for regulating AI and Google is working with the EU supposedly on some regulation um, stopgap while they, while they work out proper regulations. And I think it is a kind of, you know, they know that some regulation's coming. So saying, oh, we welcome it makes them seem that like they're not antagonistic and they can also maybe get to shape it. I think also it's worth recognizing two things that people in government really don't understand, you know, by and large have no idea what this stuff is. And so they are kind of more than happy to put themselves to some degree in the hands of the experts. So the experts working on it will be like, you know, we are the ones who really understand this and this is how how you regulate it. So they know they kind of have the the upper hand when it comes to understanding the technology. And also, you know, within the government, I've spoken to a few people in, in the government and they see a technology, I mean, they, they know that there are risks, but they see a technology that economists are saying could be enormously valuable to productivity and the economy, like make the economy grow and that the US has a lead in that over its rivals. And that, so they do not want to do anything. I think what they're probably most concerned about is accidentally putting a dampener on the technology. I thought, so I think people like Sam Altman probably know that there's not going to be very that much appetite for real hard hard regulations around the technology, um, but also just trying to trying to put on a, a good face and, and um, help shape them, shape them really. Also, I feel like when a CEO of a big company that's a big player in the tech space uh, talks about regulation, what they're really doing is they're setting themselves up as the expert in the field, which increases the importance of their role in the conversation, right? It makes them uh, a, a voice that cannot be ignored. Uh, it makes them uh, a force that everybody has to follow. Uh, so it's really about sort of inflating their important society and putting them in a position of greater power, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. That's true. And the, I mean, the, the truth is they've not even published details of how the most powerful of these AI models, GPT-4, works. So they can be the ones to say, well, we know how, how to control this because we're the only ones who have access to it. I mean, that's one of the problems with it. I think if there's something that's powerful, there's a um, a real uh, argument that it should be possible for sci- lots of scientists to to study it and ex- examine it. And um, they they haven't sort of said that they they feel that they sh- they're going to open it up and make it more transparent. And that's at the heart of the matter in Europe with Google, right? We were all covering Google I.O. a few weeks ago. And one of the things that emerged from that is, oh, actually, BARD, their generative AI chat tool, is not available in European countries. And some of our colleagues were you know, scrambling to report that out because the way that Google was presenting it was just sort of like, here, here's this world-changing tool. But it turns out there are large parts of the world that don't have access to it. And it's because of the regulatory framework that exists in those places. Yeah, that's a really big question is whether the US may adopt some sort of similar um, regulations where they require more transparency. But I read a story today where it was you know, saying that the Biden administration is kind of very divided about this. And there are a lot of people who are pushing back on the idea that we should do anything like that because they don't, again, because they don't want to stymie that you know, we've seen that with other technologies like self-driving cars. They didn't want to regulate them at all because they didn't. They thought this is going to be an enormous, amazingly powerful technology, and the U.S. is going to have a lead in it. You know, it's understandable. But then now we're, we're facing a lot of questions about how reliable these systems are, and they're having to sort of introduce more regulations. So yeah, I think it may be kind of repeating that. 
What do you think the likelihood is that we will see real regulation around AI in the near future? I think that we will see some regulation. I think that there's, it's clear that there's kind of this appetite. And um, one of the reasons, actually, you know, all these things are intention is that um, the US, along with, say, China and, and Europe, are keen to kind of set the, the set out their stall when it comes to regulation, because if you if you are the one that defines the regulation, often they get adopted elsewhere and it can be a kind of leadership role. So I think that there'll be some regulations, but I think it will be most likely be quite weak in the in the US, relatively the most most weak. Um, and the, yeah, the question of what is is really interesting. I, I've been talking to some filmmakers and writers in Hollywood who, who are really interested in, you know, what what AI, what kind of threat that may pose. And they're sort of thinking about, you know, fakery, AI fakery. And I'm, I sort of, I think one of the most obvious ones may be around sort of regulation of deep fakes requiring some um, restriction of deep fakes or, you know, platforms to, to not allow those to be distributed without uh, permission. But that's just one small aspect of a whole generative AI hmm. kind of stack. Yeah, and I do think that some of this regulation will come from the private sector, you know, um, platforms imposing rules about what can be posted, companies imposing rules about what their tools can be used for. Um, and that's not necessarily regulation. It's just self-containment. Right. And and often not terribly effective when the platforms <laughs> do that or when companies say that it doesn't stop people from doing things. And, I, and you know, definitely seeing with like these image manipulation tools, voice um, synthesis tools, um, that there's, I mean, there's just a ton of kind of voice deep fakes now going around on, on uh, Twitter and, and more and more image and video manipulation, and it's getting just easier and easier to do it. In fact, we taped an episode of Gadget Lab just a few weeks ago where our producer here, Boone, mimicked our voices and his own voice, and it was scarily good. Oh, wow. <laughs> Boone really, he holds all the power here. <laughs> he has all this audio of us that he can just put through a Gen AI tool and that'd be the end of us. <laughs> so, Will, you seem rather optimistic about the possibility of regulation here in the U.S., which I guess surprises me in some ways. I tend to think of these things as moving rather slowly. And to your earlier point that perhaps some of our Congress people don't fully understand the technology. And does that create some kind of uh, barrier to things moving forward? Um but it seems like you think this is a real possibility. Well, I guess I might have um, misspoken if I if I sounded optimistic. I think I'm, <laughs> okay. I'm, not, I'm optimistic that I, I feel like there's there's kind of a lot of momentum to to try and have some regulation. So I think that something will will come about in the US. But I suspect it will be very. I expect it probably be quite ineffectual if that's that's a measure of my yeah weak um, sauce. Will's prediction: yeah. weak sauce regulation. <laughs> but I've been—I've generally been surprised by how quickly the EU and China have moved. Them mm. both have been been sort of at the forefront of regulation, and I think that there is this. What is driving it would be less. If it does move quickly, perhaps it would be less about. Oh, we really want to make sure this is done safely than just the US having its its rules set out in that kind of global discussion you can deep you can deep fake me to say something much more articulate oh don't worry we will skeptical we're on it y'all were using this recording for it's just to capture your voice to feed the model <laughs> right right that makes sense. Yeah. yeah 
Yes. Just get me to say as many things as possible. Pretty soon okay. you'll be on this podcast every single day. We'll just, <laughs> we will make this a daily podcast thanks to AI. Um, all right, let's take another quick break and we'll come back with our very human recommendations. Hackers and cybercriminals have always held this kind of special fascination. Obviously, I can't tell you too much about what I do. It's a game. Who's the best hacker? And I was like, well, this is child's play. I'm Dina Temple Reston, and on the Click Here podcast, you'll meet them and the people trying to stop them. We're not afraid of the attack. We're afraid of the creativity and the intelligence of the human being behind it. Click Here, stories about the people making and breaking our digital world. AI machines, satellite, engine ignition, click here, and liftoff. Click here, every Tuesday and Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Will, I'm excited to hear yours because it's probably cat-related. What is your recommendation this week? Uh, I'm now going to let you down. I wish I did have a another cat-related suggestion. I, I mean, I just cats on TikTok is always my feed is pretty much generally <laughs> it's what's just your go-to. <laughs> just cats. Um, okay, I'm going to recommend a, the book Antimatter Blues by Edward Ashton. It's a follow-up to Mickey Seven. Um, which is being made into a movie. Uh, it's about a clone and his, a kind of hapless clone and his adventures on an off-world colony. Oh, I actually also, can I also recommend um, a, a TV show called Fired on Mars, which a friend of mine made. Um, it's about a guy who goes, he's a graphic designer who works on a Mars colony and he gets fired and gets into all sorts of scrapes. <laughs> <laughs> Is, is he working for Elon Musk? <laughs> that would make a that lot would make of sense. sense. <laughs> yes. And where can people find that TV show? That is on HBO. Oh, okay. Um, it's actually on Max. Sorry, I got it completely wrong. Oh, it, don't worry. Everybody gets that completely wrong. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> We're still calling it HBO on this show. The, yeah. <laughs> FKA HBO, now Max. We're just going to give it a symbol Which... eventually. <laughs> 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 um, well, the, both of those sound delightful. Thank you for that recommendation. Those recommendations, plural, Will. Mike, what's your recommendation? Well, it has nothing to do with space travel or mm. artificial intelligence, but I'm going to recommend... Is it pickles? It's, it could be pickle adjacent. <laughs> what is this? Bees wrap. Okay. Say more. Okay. This is wrap W-R-A. Oh, okay. I thought it was just a bunch of bees. Rapping? Know, rapping. <laughs> Have you heard the buzz about their latest song? Oh, no. No, 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 no. <laughs> okay, Allow me sorry. to wax philosophically. <laughs> yes. Uh, so this is food wrap. Uh, it takes the place of plastic wrap or plastic bags or any other sort of single-use plastic that you might use to preserve foods in your refrigerator or in your kitchen. It's a cotton sheet that is coated in beeswax and plant oils, and it sort of forms a seal around whatever you want to protect. So you can put it on top of like a bowl of hummus or a bowl of salsa. Um, I have been using a small one to wrap like half a zucchini or half an onion, you know, if you only use like half of a vegetable. Normally you just put plastic wrap around it, but plastic is terrible. 
as we know, it just sits in landfills and very, very slowly degrades into smaller bits of plastic that make their way into waterways and end up in our stomachs. So we should all stop using plastic. And here's a great way to do it. Um, these I encountered because we wrote about them on Wired. We actually recommend them uh, as one of our uh, favorite eco-friendly products. And we needed to take a photograph of them. So I bought some off of the Everything Store. Uh, I think it's $17 for a three-pack. And the three-pack comes with a small one, a medium one, and a large one, uh, which is just about all you need. So, so it depends on the size of the bees. It depends on the size. No. <laughs> Sorry, my heart is all a flutter just hearing about this. I'm sure. I know these jokes probably really sting. Please continue. <laughs> I just feel so defeated right now. <laughs> I will use the bees wax wrap. Yeah, bees wrap is what it's called. Bees and there wrap. are multiple companies that make this. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm going to recommend bees wrap because it's the one that I bought that I like. And it's uh, a three pack for less than $20. You can buy it at uh, hippie grocery stores or you can just buy it on the internet. Uh, but it's great. I use them all the time. And I will say that if you're washing them, which you, which you should do in between uses, wash them in cold water. Because washing them in hot water will ruin them because it'll melt the beeswax and it'll all run off into your sink. <laughs> this recommendation is the bee's knees. Lauren, I feel like I should save everybody from any more <laughs> bee puns <laughs> by asking you what your recommendation is. Oh, all right. <laughs> Moment of silence for the end of succession. Great. So those of you who listen to our <laughs> podcast know several weeks ago, I recommended that you watch Succession. Season four had just begun. And I said, watch it from the beginning so you can get completely enmeshed with the Roy family and feel emotionally attached to this Sunday night program on the channel formerly known as HBO. The season finale was this past week. Uh, it was epic, epic television. But it, if you were feeling like I was feeling afterwards, just kind of empty and like, I want more. And now I'm just scrolling Instagram looking for succession memes and texting all my friends and saying, oh, my God, did you see who, what happened at the end? You should listen to the Succession podcast. Yeah. So um, full disclosure, the person who hosts this podcast, Kara Swisher, is uh, I, I know her quite well. Yep. She's sometimes like takes my parking spot, which is a whole other story. But I used to work with Kara. She's a fantastic podcast interviewer, and she has a podcast for HBO that is the Succession follow-up podcast every week that you can listen to. And so uh, this week, she had interviews with Alexander Skarsgård, Jeremy Strong, and Mark Mylod, uh, two of the actors on the on the program, and then the director. Uh, you have to check it out. It's great. It's just like the, the kind of extra succession content that you need if you, like me, were grieving the end of the program. So that's that's a good recommendation. Mm -hmm. And props to Kara and props to all of the people in journalism who do these podcasts about shows. But I'm kind of over like the show has a podcast, you know, I, like <laughs> I, I tend to agree, except for this show. Oh, so like this show is the one that leaves you wanting more and the thing that you want more of is chatter about the show. Well, and if they can do like a well-produced podcast, then that's something that you'll listen to. Right. Because 
a lot of the podcasts about TV shows, and no discredit to them, but they're they're fandom shows. It's right. a couple of people who are really really into the program, like I am, and they're just sitting around talking about it like pals. Kara actually gets to talk to you know Brian Cox or the director or the writer or some of the stars of the show, and so you're like you're hearing directly from them about how they develop their characters and how they were thinking about the plot lines, and I really enjoy that. So Kara has that thing that I call the machine. Which is when she's interviewing you, you know, it, it you know, you, you feel like uh, you feel her presence. <laughs> you have been in her presence. We have been in her presence and you know this. She's a very forceful interviewer. She is. She's a very good interviewer in that she gets her interview subjects to talk about things that no other interviewer is capable of getting them to talk about. Very much so. She is very good at identifying people's weaknesses and going for it in the podcast. <laughs> and it's different, I think, when you're interviewing tech executives like she does all the time, where there are these are people in extreme positions of power and you're sort of you're punching up and you are asking them the very hard questions about how they're running their businesses versus when you also get to be an interviewer, but a fan and talk to someone who is just completely in their creative element making a show. I think it's a different, it's a slightly different vibe. So is this a soft pitch for you to do one of these next time? No, I, I, no, I don't have the time, honestly. <laughs> I would love to. I, in an ideal world, certainly. But I already have another podcast, in case you didn't know. And um, I'm already, you know, just struggling to fit it all into the day. So no, I'm not volunteering myself for a TV show podcast. Okay. But I enjoyed listening to them. What What if the co-host is Alexander Skarsgård? I'm down. <laughs> I'm there. Love the Skarsgård. Perfect. All right. Well, that's it for our show. Thank you so much, Will, for joining us and disabusing us of the notion that we are at this moment headed for an extension event because of AI. Well, I certainly hope I'm right. I, I do, too. We both do. <laughs> and thanks to all of you for listening. If you have feedback and you're still here, you can find all of us on Twitter. Just check the show notes. We'd love to hear from you. Our producer is the excellent Boone Ashworth, the very real man himself. Goodbye for now. We'll be back next week. Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the Reviews Director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com. <laughs>